welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, also the other thing, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we're going to discuss Chapter 9 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. And with us tonight, we have our special guest, Jared Rasher. What's up, Jared? Hello, thank you for having me on. Um, I hope I live up to all the illustrious company that you've had in this uh, discussion so far. I feel good about it. I've known you online for a a long damn time. (laughs) Also with me tonight is my uh, co-host, the other set of footprints in the sand. Thanks, Parker Pals, for stealing that one. Uh, (laughs) Sam Dillon. What's up, Sam? Hello. How is everybody doing? Jared, I have no doubt that you will live up to, so to speak, (laughs) the other guests, because I've read some of your awesome reviews and Twitter threads. Why? Thank you. (laughs) We only take proper villains around here. (laughs) Uh, So tonight we're talking about Chapter 9, The Dungeon Master's Workshop. So... What is this chapter, Jared? What am I even looking at? (laughs) This chapter is a whole bunch of things. Um, This is kind of what didn't fit anywhere else, but a lot of it is uh, optional rules. And when you get past optional rules, you get to the, what is the math and theory behind building the individual components that make up the game? So so is this the 3.5 Unearthed Arcana, but now in 5th edition? Sort of. I, I th- th- It does kind of feel like that, like a condensed version of that. Okay, well, episode over, then. You can just go listen to the uh, 3E Unearthed Arcana. Perfect. Great gotcha. job. Sewing up. All right. <laughs> More time for digressions. Let's go. <laughs> and now I mean, we corner. did like four episodes on that book, right? <laughs> did we get through it in four? I, uh, I think it, it might have been it six. Been I don't more. know. <laughs> so... So right out the gate, uh, it's experimenting with things all the way down to what the math of a roll looks like with the proficiency dice. Well, hold Um, on, hold on, hold on. You skipped skipped something very important in this chapter. Yeah, they're going to insist that your player's liking it is important to including a roll. I I don't think that's true. No, no. No, that's not that's not what I was talking about. Okay, okay, However, okay. there's two sentences before that crap that uh, that comes up. It says, "This chapter contains optional rules that you can use to customize your campaign, as well as guidelines on creating your own materials, such as monsters and magic items." The options in this chapter relate to many different parts of the game. Some of them are variants of rules, and others are entirely new rules. Each option represents a different genre, style of play, or both. Consider trying no more than one or two of the options at a time so that you can clearly assess their effects on your campaign before adding other options. Then at the end of that little section, it says, Beware of adding anything to your game that allows a character to concentrate on more than one effect at a time, use more than one reaction or bonus action per round, or attune to more than three magic items at a time. So right off the bat, they're telling you, number one, this is all optional. We encourage you to use it, but you should only do these a little bit at a time to make sure that it's actually right for you. Secondly, it tells you here are three very specific things 
that we suggest you stay away from because they will break what we see as some important elements of the game, basically the action economy. <laughs> I, I feel like they should have also added for proper scientific technique, you should w- run one <laughs> campaign with those one or two options and then run another campaign that is identical, not using those options and then take right. notes. So the first, you're right. The first part of that advice is, is not necessarily as I, I, I don't necessarily ascribe to that first part. However, this is one of the only times in this book where they are really, really specific about what they want you to do and how they want you to try to use this material. And then also tell you, don't do these three things. Yeah, I think those are really interesting um, sort of rails to for them to identify as uh, the, the most important rules of... Uh, of power balance. Like, I guess it makes sense. You know, I I guess it makes sense. I I think all of those are really important points for how fifth edition kind of has its own identity versus other versions of D and D. But what's really interesting is you get those broad ones up front, but when you drill down into some of the other sections of this, they give you things that are sort of like, don't do this with a race. Don't do this with a background. Don't do this with a class. And many of those things that were kind of staked out as don't do this because that's not how 5e does it, it, those aren't true anymore. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's kind of where I was going with this, that this chapter actually starts with some don'ts (laughs) and then tells, and then tells you later, well, here's, here's how we're, you know, conceiving of this particular part of the game. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame them for specifically wanting to challenge their own assumptions and seeing what happens if you like set up a, a, a barrier and then punch through it and find out what happens. That, that makes sense to me. But, yeah. you know, they're, they're not expecting the, um, the, the person using their guidelines here to be pioneering those kinds of ideas, right? Right. Necessarily. Right. Um, I mean, Lord knows there are plenty of, uh, let's say rules in here that they're going to not follow and <laughs> they're doing so with understanding and intent. I'm right. not, I'm not saying it's some kind of math accident that firewall and lightning bolt do 86 rather than 66. Yeah. Um, so would that be considered a math emergency? A, like a I'm, math I'm emergency? like, I, I like the idea of a math emergency. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we can move on. <laughs> um, I am without comment. Certainly, certainly I will say uh, something emerges from that math. So in that sense, yes, it is emergent math. Yeah. Well, I'll also point out to you, though, about specifically about the fireball is that they are kind of on record, not kind of, they are on record as admitting that they let the fireball be really powerful for, oh, for its sure. level. Yeah, for sure. Beca- because of tradition, right? Beca- yeah, because that's, of, that's exactly yeah. what I'm getting at, right? Yeah, yeah. The, right. They they came in with malice forethought. <laughs> and, <laughs> and See, math emergency, I'm telling you. Yeah, <laughs> and any major change you're going to make, it, it is hard to get to the level of 
understanding that they're operating on as a, as a third party or homebrew designer. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say impossible, but it's hard. Um, there, there are subtleties there and there are things that like, mostly come out of, okay, how much complexity is too much complexity? Well, a, a homebrew or third party designer can't know that because we don't read the surveys. Right. And Lord knows wizard is never going to tell you what's in the surveys. That is not <laughs> what they do. Here. Well, cause they would like you to believe that the future products are uh, put out with those survey responses in mind. And that's what tells you what was in those survey responses. Right. I also argue that some people that are fans of certain third parties are more okay with something that the third party puts out that varies than they would be if wizards did something that mm-hmm. did something more wild. All right. So, so actually launching into some of the, the bits here, there's going to be a lot of them, much like chapter eight, a lot of nooks and crannies going on in this chapter. Um, so I remember proficiency dice from D and D next. Yes. And me too. they were really popular with, with my gaming community uh, in the window of the packets where they were a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the really My- interesting effect of um, failure and success are on the table for a much wider range mm-hmm. of outcomes. Yeah, your outcomes are more swingy. My 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 table, my group at that time was very sad to see them not in the next packet when they got dropped and we got yeah. the next packet. They were very sad to not see them in there. I'll tell you what's interesting to me is I don't know if I really like them, but there is a part of my brain that kind of likes the idea of expertise being roll two of these and pick the better instead of giving more plus. (laughs) Yeah. I strongly agree with that actually. Um, And that would also be an interesting alternate path for something like bless Mm -hmm. to have a a scaling bless that maybe moved into prayer since prayers, it used to be such a staple of cleric spellcasting and is just totally in absentia. Mm-hmm. So neither one of you would have a problem with the fact that that means expertise would sometimes not allow for as good a performance as just regular proficiency. No, I would regard that as a benefit of the outcome. <laughs> that, that is the selling point of doing that to me. It, yeah. Honestly, it, it keeps expertise within the um, bounded accuracy Uh, frame yeah and honestly if you're at the point to where there is a variable chance to not succeed at something then it's fine to have a chance to not succeed at something i mean it's already Mm -hmm. it's already true in the game right but in this case i'm not talking specifically about failure i'm talking about the fact that that means if if you have expertise and you roll both dice but you only use the highest one you theoretically could roll a one and a two, let's say, while someone with just regular proficiency could have rolled a four on the same. I mean, roll. that's playing the odds. Yeah, it's yeah. Playing the odds. I mean, yeah. you're yeah. you're also maybe more likely to see uh, your your d10 actually turn up a ten for you with expertise. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I actually agree with both of you about this, but I'm just, I'm putting it out there because yeah. I know that yeah. some of my players would be, would be, uh, they would. Uh, if they thought I was uh, instituting this particular variant rule, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they would be really disappointed if I changed it further and said, well, expertise doesn't mean you take both extra. You just take the best one. Right. I, I think what's weird is people latch on to different mechanics and what they mean and apply some emotional uh, gravitas to those things. And it, mm-hmm. honestly, it's no different than if one person attacks without advantage and another person attacks with advantage, the person with advantage gets like a one and a five and the person without advantage got a crit. Yep, I mean, sure. the person with advantage should have had a better chance to get I a mean, crit, but they didn't. One time in 400, someone with disadvantage is going to toss those double twenties and I guess it just guess it just got real. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, but see, it, I still, I, I'll tell you exactly what my players would say, and then we can move on from this because I don't want to belabor the point. But <laughs> they would say, yeah, but in a case where somebody is attacking with advantage, they didn't choose a specific set of abilities or a specific class or whatever to get expertise to get that advantage role, right? That well, advantage role is something I that... Mean, you wouldn't spring this on the mid-campaign. Well, of yeah. course not. No, of course not. Right. And it's, I mean, that, that same thing, like, what if the person got advantage because they snuck up on someone, they chose that as a tactic instead mm-hmm. of another tactic in order to get advantage and it still didn't pay off for them. So it's, if we're doing, if we're doing 60 seconds in expertise, I think it's a damn crime that wizards don't have expertise in Arcana. There I said, it. you know, it is weird because I don't like seeing expertise, uh, go out, you know, get spread out to everything but yes there are some places where it's weird that it hasn't right and it's it's one of the weird things about natural explorer too because it is crypto expertise we could even talk about the fact that arcana is actually a a criminally underused skill (laughs) in fifth edition along with medicine well oh god (laughs) i mean i I know i know i I know they're on i know i know it's different but but they're both criminally underused no it's one of those tangent things isn't it yeah, yeah, you <laughs> <Caught> on. <laughs> see, there's a there's a, a a curve line in our graph, and this is the line that touches at exactly one point. <laughs> That's a, a a math error. <laughs> a, a math emergency has occurred. I'm talking about math. I no, the, the emergency occurred a while ago. Now we're just in the error phase. <laughs> Anyway, oh, <laughs> so, but, but, but so, so back to the topic, how do you feel about the proficiency dice? Do you like them? Do you dislike them? Do you think it's a, a sort of nice way to add something, some variability, some more swinginess? W- 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 how do you feel about it? I, I would have no problem in implementing them in a new campaign starting. Uh, the, the serious problem now is that you'd have to figure out how to teach roll 20 to do it because, <laughs> we're in this pandemic we're, guys we're going back into lockdown it's going to happen yeah i know we're going to be stuck back in no face-to-face games and implementing this in an online game is not happening until beyond 20 actually has its act together for that kind of thing so no <laughs> so uh, that, that's why i wouldn't do it yeah so tangent time again right isn't it interesting how the pandemic has has absolutely exploded the vtt Oh my sort God. of the idea of VTTs and as being a viable way and a, appropriate and fun way to play the game. It, that was true before the pandemic for a cer- certain subset of D and D players, but the pandemic has made it has, has sort of forced people who wouldn't have otherwise done this to now do them. And at the same time as expanding that entire range of what you can do, 
it's actually also narrowed it because of just what you're talking about, how, you know, if you don't, if you're not, if you don't know how to program in those macros, it's not going to work for you. Well, and I have any of these variant rules, right? It's, it's really, really rough. If you have homebrew classes, homebrew subclasses, um, homebrew magic items are the least worst, but if you're into homebrewing at all, man, this is a tough time. I, 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 generally don't use uh vtt's even when i run online but mm-hmm. i have been like leaning heavily on using albert rodeo whenever i run DD online because it is nice being able to have the the positioning that everybody can agree on and mm-hmm. you know see where you're at yeah. and things like that yeah i love albert rodeo I use it for my castles and crusades game mm-hmm. but, but i'll but tell you just really like not typing in dice expressions Sorry, Sam. <laughs> and the thing is, like, for my Castle and Crusades game, we just roll regular dice and we're on the honor system. Mm-hmm. Same with my D&D brief game. Same thing. But for my Rhyme game, my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game, having the module in Roll20 already all programmed is a godsend. So, anyway. Tangent. I'm going to say that by the first half hour, we probably should have been through the first page. Well, it's only been 17 minutes, so you know. Okay. Uh, we still I, that means I can still tangent for for 10 more minutes. <laughs> hey, and also, I'm looking I'll, at I'll it on, the screen. I'm looking at it in D and D Beyond, so it's all one page. It's fine. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, so next up, we get skill variants. Uh, if I can be so abrupt, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. Uh, so we get skill variants where. Um, they're trying some other things with how skills work. Ability, ability check proficiency by class. This is you have proficiency in all checks you make with one ability score instead of having skills at all. I don't care for this. It's not my I, I don't either. <laughs> it, I mean, it really is not going to play well with any published content. You're, this is very much just launching off into your own wilderness of, of content. Um, and uh, here again, expertise gets changed up. Um, you, you expertise gives you two ability scores. That seems really weird. Yeah. It's suddenly, twice as many skills, sort of. And but also, just the the differing number of skills per ability really makes that well. Know. But recognize that you're you don't use skills. Right. The whole the whole point of this is that you don't the, use skills; you just use attribute checks. The, the differing number of things that a, a single ability score is standing in for, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but so that's that's part of the problem with this variant, right? Is that if you've played fifth edition for the past mm, seven years, and you've learned that well, uh, you know, investigate is intelligence, and perception is wisdom, and stealth is dexterity, and uh, athletics is strength, and blah 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 and persuasion is charisma, whatever, then if you try to move to this system, you're still maybe thinking that in here. And so it feels like a loss. But if you're coming from a system where there is no skill system... So here's the thing. This is very much like how Castles and Crusades does it because there's no skill system in Castles and Crusades. It's all attribute checks. But you don't have the issue of, oh, well, that means some people are good at perception and some are good at stealth and some are, I mean, you do have that problem, but it's not such a direct line 
it's not a problem in castles and crusades. Let me say it that way. Sure. And if you started a campaign and played that way, if you were playing with all new players, this could work. Or if you were playing with players who came from a system with no skills, like basic D and D or first edition, this could work. And it's just a replacement of the fifth edition core piece with what's more familiar in first edition. I I think what I would say about this is there is, there is a a possible realm where a 5e OGL game could use this setup, but I do not think it is core D&D. I would accept that as if you wanted to build a, an, an ultralight 5e where maybe only the, the core four classes and their, that they're each of their core um, subclasses, you know, champion, evoker, uh, life domain, thief, was all was allowed. Maybe we're somewhere with that. Well, and also maybe you know where you're redesigning your core classes and not having a, as much that touches on expertise or granting extra proficiencies or things like that. Where sure. you get into all of this messy. Well, what does that mean in this system? Right. Well, so. That's why. So it's funny for you to say it's not core D and D. What you mean is it's not f- core fifth edition. Yes. Right. Because it definitely is core D and D for some editions. Yes. And the thing about fifth edition is is that every class has certain abilities and certain you know whatever certain well, attributes, certain traits, certain whatever. Yeah. That, 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 that's why I said it. Something yeah. based on the five E O G L you could still do something with this. It just isn't what, right. It doesn't play nice with D and D as it has developed. It's a very difficult optional rule to implement. Mm -hmm. If you're playing with players who already know about fifth edition and who've already played it. Cause again, it feels like a loss. And remember anytime you tell the players that, you that you want to take some options off the table if they've already used those options in some other campaign or whatever it's going to feel like a loss to them Mm. that's super true and honestly i kind of like the concept that you know somebody that's very smart and looking at all the angles and where all the patrols are at could use say intelligence for stealth but then you get into a very different game of trying to narrate your fictional positioning to favor whatever, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ability checks that you have proficiency in, which is also something that is not the feel that we currently have in fifth edition D and D. Right. Yeah. Though, uh, alternate uh, ability score pairings with skills is a, a popular undercurrent. Oh yeah, present. definitely. And approved by the books formally. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, I think next up, uh, background proficiency. Um, this is this is a really interesting one to me. Um, we did use this one for a while in D&D Next. I think it might have been my own edition. I don't remember if this was ever formally part of D&D Next, <laughs> but we did use this. Um, it's very 13th age. Yeah. that That is exactly what I thought when I was reading this as well. And that was fine with me, right? I, I I really have no problem with that model in 13th age, um, except that uh, going from your best background to a one-point background feels a little, oh, uh, some of the time. Yeah. Well, and this is one of those things w- that would intersect 
intersect nicely with the previous variant, right? But doesn't really intersect that nicely with the current situation in the game, right? If you're using right. the regular skill system and regular backgrounds, especially given what's come out since this book was published in terms of character options and oh, different oh. variant rules mm-hmm. and all that stuff, this is this won't work by itself. Right. Well, and, and this has the drawback of asserting your background as your primary identity. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's not great. Um, right. It doesn't Which I already have with, that problem with backgrounds. <laughs> uh, I don't feel that the current rules do that. I think that your, your identity is a, a reasonable blend of your background, your race, and your class and subclass. Um, subclass is sort of an adjective on the, the noun of your class, in a sense. Um, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I just feel like the game, uh, by the time the, the to- tangent again, but by the time the, the player has finished making their first level character, they feel like that character has a whole history Sure, sure. Right. And that's that's all I'm saying is that in, including the background mechanic mechanically speaking, including the background. Um like what I love about backgrounds is that they do um give a societal positioning of some kind, mm-hmm. even if that positioning is exile with, you know, the um the urchin or the outlander. Um Yeah. I think that I mean, certainly what I was trying to do and level up your background is to draw people more into seeing backgrounds as their, uh, their social connection, like, uh, on ramp. Um, mm-hmm. and a, a major driver of your connections to other people. And so, so I like that. Like, I think I wish that all backgrounds came with a formal list of contacts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously I, setting contextualized, but mm-hmm. you know, contact uh, rules or something. I really wish got a little bit more granular in 5e and not not super complicated, just you have a contact, this is what you can use it for. It this is why it matters, you know. Right. And well, it, and so you can look at the uh, 3.5 DMG2. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole several <laughs> pages in a few different chapters on that <laughs> and we weren't in love with them from what i recall they, uh i wasn't in love with the, i was in love with the idea of it how they yeah. wanted you or they were trying to provide a way for that contact to matter yeah right um but you know uh i think that also making renown rules matter by having some kind of renown option from your starting background wouldn't have been a bad move. Right. Well, and they, the renowned rules in this book are optional though. So they didn't put it. Exactly. In. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a problem. Every time I think of something that you could use contacts for, it interacts with a, an optional part of the rules. For example, like if you know somebody that you could say shortcut through the magic item purchase section, and I'm trying not to go off on a tangent on that, but just as an example, <laughs> But that's an optional rule. Mm-hmm. So that contact would give you a connection to an optional rule. So what does it do if you're not using that optional rule? For sure. Right. right. Um, and, you know, there's not sort of a mode of all the options are on because that's a meaningless statement. 
Mm-hmm. Right? The options are contradictory in a lot of cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, back to this. So do you think that this background proficiency variant actually takes the bite out of backgrounds? Like it takes the usefulness out of them? Um, I, I don't think it takes usefulness out of them. I think that you need to also have uh, like, this is, it's an aspect, right? Like uh, this and the one after it, personality trait proficiency. These are both ways of framing fate style aspects. Right. Yeah. Like I, I compared it to 13th age and I'm, I, I stand by that, but also it, it feels like fate and your class needs to be one. Yeah. Like it, it's all saying, you know, because I am a fill in noun for my, my three noun phrase, mm-hmm. I, I can blah better where, yeah. where, where the, you know, any verb. Um, and, you know, lots of games have been working in exactly that space. This is a valid entry into that space. Um, the, the one step removed that is the, the official model in 5e is still fine. It just, it's just about thinking about where you got that skill from. Like, mm-hmm. uh, do you have proficiency in perception? You know, do, do you have excellent perception because you are an elf because you are a rogue, uh, because you are, um, oh, whichever of the backgrounds gives you perception proficiency. I certainly don't remember, but, <laughs> but you know, you get me. Yeah. Right? Um, any of those would be valid if we kept track of why you had any, at each of your proficiencies that might be an interesting little tiny like narrative flavoring hook for dms right yeah um, but n- not an important one i'm not actually bemoaning its its absence mm-hmm. right um well here, here's the problem i have with the personality trait proficiency <laughs> um and now when i say problem i i mean i don't it's not this doesn't really rise to the level of problem, right? It's just, it's a reason I wouldn't actually implement this one. And it's totally on me because the way I play the game, but Uh uh, because I'm not playing fate, I'm not trying to memorize my players, characters, ideals, bonds, flaws, and personality (laughs) traits. For all the reasons, inspiration doesn't really work in 5e. Right. Right. And so, and I, and I hate to keep like, I don't want to beat that dead horse. Like, because I mean, I don't, I haven't surveyed everybody who's ever played D and D and, and found out if, or fifth edition and they found out if they use, you know, inspiration, but because I personally don't use it, uh, and memorize or write down or try to track, you know, how well the PCs are playing to their ideals, bonds, flaws, and personality traits. This also then doesn't really fit well into my style of running the game. Because I, in fate, when I run fate, and I do have those aspects, because that's such a part of the game that is important in terms of economy and fate points and all that, mm-hmm. I need to have those, and I do learn those uh, about the PCs. Uh, but there's also a lot of things that are in D and D five E that I'm not worrying about in Fate, yeah. and so I have mm-hmm. room to deal with those aspects and tags for scenes and stuff like that. But in Fifth Edition, I don't have room to deal with five PCs worth of ideals, bonds, flaws, and personality traits. Yeah. When I, 
when I'm running an NPC and I can literally give them a skill that says bite real hard plus six, you know, when I'm running fate, yeah, right. I'm, it's not as hard to have that list of, Mm -hmm. you know, of aspects and go, okay, this looks like this is triggered. You know, I will offer you this for a compel, you know, because that's, that is where the complexity is at in that model versus in five E. Right. Um, One of the things that I have switched up with, um, traits and bonds and flaws and, and everything and ideals is I have shifted to asking specific questions that have a specific answer. And that's made it a lot easier for me to remember what those things are that are important to each person. And it's made it easier to tie it to the setting. So like if like uh, when I'm running a gritty urban setting, one of my questions was, who did you let down? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot easier to figure out. Oh, this has something to do with this person that you screwed over or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this is a point at which, you know, now that this has come up as a complication here, take inspiration. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I do in my session zero. I do a little bit of cooperative party building where I ask sort of leading questions, almost like that. One of my questions, my favorite questions to ask is of one PC, which, which other PC do you trust the most? Mm-hmm. And then they say it and I don't ask them why necessarily. And then I say, who do you distrust the most? Right. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I ask the person who they said they distrusted. I say, why do you trust this person who distrusts you? Right. And it creates this weird little triangle of circumstance. And we don't even really need to know the details of what's happening there because in the players' minds, it just created a weird piece of tension. And with my group of players, they'll play the hell out of that weird tension, right? Whereas they don't necessarily play the hell out of the tension in an ideal bond or flaw because mm-hmm. they rolled on a table, right? The same thing I do, I did in Rime of the Frost Maiden, where they have the secrets, right? And they don't know each other's secrets, but I, when I gave them the choice of secrets, I didn't have them draw randomly. I gave them some yeah. choices, and the choices were sort of c- catered to their character, and every choice would end up affecting another PC, even though they don't know it because they don't know what the other PC's secrets are. Mm-hmm. And so I could intertwine it that way, and the, those characters play the hell out of that, and it's wonderful. I also think the other problem, this, this is, this is my tangent <laughs> when it comes to, have at it, man. <laughs> when it comes to traits in five E, the biggest problem is if you're going to use it for inspiration, it should be written more like, because of this, I tend to do this so that you have an answer to, have you done this? Yes or no. If yes, here's inspiration, but they're not written that way. And some of them are written in really weirdly passive ways. I tend to kind of think this in certain circumstances when I wake up on Tuesdays and it's like, wow, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think it, it is a sign that it was something that was kind of imported from um, certain types of more narrative games that didn't get completely refined by the time the rules came out. Right. So anyway, I think we can move on from that. Um, the roundup there is, these aren't bad options, but they just don't really fit into the way that I play the game. So I probably would never implement these. I'd still be much more likely to try out the proficiency die than anything else in there. 
Yeah. Oh, I meant these on this page. Yeah. yeah. I, I would try the proficiency die, and I I would even I would even consider the ability check proficiency just because I'm used to running castles and crusades. It'd be super easy for me to implement that. Uh, so I would try background proficiency, but also add, uh, you know, at minimum your your race and your class mm-hmm. as other things you could key off of uh, and call it a day. Yep. Um, I, I know I could make that work because I watch it work in 13th age all the dang time. So, mm-hmm. um, and like, it's the same as qualities in um, uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse. Indeed. Just, <laughs> you know, we could turn that into a die, a die expression with the rule in the page previous mm-hmm. and whelp is where we wind up. Like it's fine. Um, so next up is hero points. Um, a rule against, against which I have a totally unreasonable grudge. <laughs> All right, let's hear it. What's the grudge. Uh, I hate the player needing to spend out their hero points before they level and needing to have a sense of how many encounters or sessions it will be until they level. I hate that with a, a deep and burning hatred. It is a rule that kind of exists without context of what the campaign looks like. Yep. Um, I hated it all the way back to 3.5 ever, ever on. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in UA before that. I hate that. It, <laughs> it is, it turns your mechanical choice into trying to outguess the DM on your progression. And mm-hmm. that is awful to me. Yeah. Um, because I don't like that you lose all your unspent hero points. That feels terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know why they did like that? that. Uh, why did they do that, Tim? Because if they didn't do that, there would be a math emergency at the beginning of next level. <laughs> sure. Like, but you'd have a consumable that no one would ever spend. Yeah. But <laughs> trying to trying to guess the right amount to spend no, I, is yeah, it's horrible. horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. Well, you know, I don't like hero points because I favor action points, but you know why they don't have action points in here? Because they warn you two pages before about doing anything that could change what kind of actions people get or how many actions people get. They don't want you to change the action economy at all. Mm -hmm. So they didn't bother to put action points in here. And I got to tell you, I miss action points. I think they're they're (laughs) a great idea, but they're they're better than hero points for me. I'm not necessarily sure I would use them in fifth edition, but. Right. I think that fifth edition is not built quite right for them. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly yeah, because they have of, to be changed, right? They like, have to be changed. Mostly because it's so waters down action surge. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think we're on the same page here. I think the other problem with hero points too, is the one to six range. I don't know. It doesn't feel as, you know, when somebody is like, Oh, I'm three points away from this thing. I'm going to spend the hero point and they roll a one or a two. It just, I don't know. It's there's weird emotional ups and downs that go yeah. <laughs> when you're yep. using well, hero like, points. It, and here's the thing. If you, if you didn't limit it, if you didn't do that, a player can spend only one hero point per roll mm-hmm. and they had six and they really needed to succeed mm-hmm. and they rolled a one or two and they needed a three, they'd roll another one. Yeah. And that yeah. should be okay because yeah. you're, you're supporting them spending something that they, that makes them more heroic, which is the whole idea of the hero point, right? Yeah, I'm not sure it's really breaking something if you're letting someone burn all of their resources just to accomplish that one thing right. they really want to do. Yep, I agree with that. Um, we're about to move into a whole section of 
just stamp this with the nope stamp and um, <laughs> let's move on. My, my notes for this section are deep sigh. Yep. Um, I mean, <laughs> your other possible note was a yikes, and I would just be asking you what the font size was on the yikes. Uh, because it's honor and sanity. Like, it's, it's two things that we need to not be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to not be associating honor and honor rules with Asian cultures. Yeah. It's not cool. Um, if you want a really thorough explanation of why it's not cool, uh, go listen to Daniel Kwan. He'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has podcasts. You don't need to ask him personally. Um, <laughs> and then if you want to know why sanity rules aren't cool, um, this conversation. No, I Ref- yeah. refer to our recorded mm-hmm. discussion about the madness tables in a previous chapter. Yeah. Just, yeah. just don't. Just, just take well, here's uh, let me add on to the pile. Why I don't like this section because this should be more like renown or piety. Yeah. yeah. And that, you, you don't need to make it a whole other attribute, quote unquote attribute. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, there's, I'm sold. there's two vectors of wrong here. One is these aren't good things to track. And two, these aren't things that should be ability scores. <laughs> right. Yeah, yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. 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 We're good. We can cool. <laughs> move on. Um, that's why I spent so much time on the first two pages. I knew we were just going to fly through that. <laughs> yeah, just, just exposed to your justification. Good job, Sam. <laughs> Love you, buddy. I'm, I'm witty uh, like that, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's brevity. It's what it is. The very soul of wit. <laughs> Tediousness is yet where limbs yes. and flourishes. Oh, yeah. I never um, bloviate. Ever. Ever. <laughs> not on here. Not anywhere. <laughs> uh, therefore, it will be brief. So fear and horror is up next. Um And I don't like, like the, the rule for fear here is not even a rule. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just an implementation in an adventure. It's not a rule. Yeah. If, and, you, if you get me. And if you get frightened and you're not immediately like in combat or something, like what does that do? Well, you're right. You really have to have a specific source of the fear for the frightened condition to operate. Mm-hmm. Like I am generally frightened is not a functional effect. Yeah. But let me tell you why I actually take exception to this little paragraph. Wait on me. It's the English they use. They say when adventurers confront threats, they have no hope of overcoming. If you have no hope of overcoming it, why do you get a save? <laughs> <laughs> Like, seriously, I mean, I know this is such a petty thing, right? And that's, I know exactly what they mean. But honestly, if you're going to tell me that there's no hope, just say then you realize when you walk into this room and there is a red dragon drooling on at your feet, right? It's drooling, dripping down in the, and the hot, steamy saliva of the red dragon is hitting the ground. You realize after you your pants that there is no hope of overcoming this you are afraid and you turn and run yep. it is a dc 15 agility check to get through your own bottle of pee <laughs> yes <laughs> but you know what i mean like i don't know i, I feel, feel like they, they could do so much better with fear and they don't and, and then horror is no better because 
we're back to using the short-term and long-term madness yeah. rules, the, the which we have already dismissed uh, roundly. So, meh. Well, can I can I ask? Because I okay, so I don't have. I'm not a super huge fan of Ravenloft. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have anything against it. I'm just not a fan of the Gothic horror as my D and D. Um, but I, so I don't have the latest Ravenloft uh, book that came out, which has all the, like the d- domains of dread and all that. Right. This section is massively rewritten. Yeah. Right. Be well, that's more, what I was going to ask: is if it yeah. if it deals with fear and horror in a in a better way? Absolutely, it does. Yeah. Uh, it's still <laughs> possible to find it lacking. The stress mechanic. Um, did not get super well received by the people I heard talking about it because it is a flat penalty to D20 rolls. Mm-hmm. And that is weird, but it is a progressive effect. Uh, so that's what, that's what it has going for it. Yeah. And then there's a whole other set of rules around. This is the thing I'm afraid of. And like, I will freak out in this situation, but I gained inspiration because I did the hard, I did the, you know, yeah. Yeah. suboptimal thing okay. i mean i actually really like when someone you know when you tell someone okay give me a negative trait that you want to write and when you play into that i will give you inspiration for it i like yep. that because that's kind of framing it and handing it back to the person and yep. um it actually reminds me um uh there's a pbta game called the sprawl that has a supernatural supplement and one of the things that you do in that is you pick coping mechanisms and coping mechanisms are, you don't have to do them, but once you have an issue with something that has, you know, scared the crap out of you, basically, you pick, you, if you play into those coping mechanisms to hinder your character, you get benefits for it. And that is so much better than saying that you randomly get this, you know, DSM-4 outlined, you know, um, <laughs> yeah mental illness mental illness uh, yeah because that's part of your character building is to think about okay when i get really stressed out i do this yep for sure and the ravenloft thing does actually do that a little bit yeah and i and i'll tell you that if we if we go back a page where it's talking about the personality trait proficiency and it's saying you know if the person has a negative the pc has a negative trait uh and they might get disadvantage on an ability check what you've done is so much better than that because you said, okay, you tell me what your, mm-hmm. what your, what your fear thing is or what your, what your coping mechanism is or, or however you worded that when you first said it. And if you play that up, I'll give you an inspiration. And then it's on the player's shoulders to show you that their character really does do that thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they don't, then it's just not a, they just don't get the inspiration. It's not a punishment. It's just a, you know, it's like, it's a, it's positive reinforcement. You do this thing because you think it's fun. It's an appropriate spot. I give you a reward for it. If you don't, it, there's no punishment. It, it's like a self compel and fate. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it can definitely work. Yeah. Um, J- Jamie Lee Curtis runs away from Michael Myers. She gets advantage later on in the movie. She is willing to actually try and kick his ass because she is just fed up with it. Yep. Right. 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 And, and to uh, look back at hero points for a second, if there were ways to earn new hero points within a level, mm-hmm. we'd at least be somewhere with me finding this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, it, if they are rewards and not just a currency you get by leveling, I'm, I hate it at least less. Yeah. Because then it's not as important to take them all away when you level and give mm-hmm. you a new bet. You know what? We're done. We can move yeah. on. 
<laughs> um, so healing. So healing. So Sam, do you have feelings about the medicine skill? <laughs> That's called a callback, folks. Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And do you know what they don't mention in this section? Medicine skill. <laughs> um, or Arcana. Hey, think about that, okay? <laughs> in fairness, Arcana actually doesn't belong here, but yes. I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But uh, yeah, no, I, you know, yeah, let's talk about healing and not talk about a, a specific skill that they have put into the game. Yeah. That deals with healing a person. Yeah. Like, I, I actually do really like Healer's Kit Dependency. I approve of that immensely. And I like it specifically because um, it involves something you might need to resupply. Right. It's a resource it, management uh, yeah. item that the, the PCs can deal with. Now, if you want to bolt on a medicine check to that, dead simple. Mm-hmm. Dead simple. And fun and good for you, right? Yep. Um like the only thing that medicine definitely does is stabilize at DC 10. If at call it DC 10 or 15, I don't care. Just a number. Um, you get some additional effect on using a healer's get to heal someone or story points to someone in, you know, a, a minute of work or whatever. Great. Lovely. Reduce the number of spell slots. The cleric has to spend, Fine, do it. <laughs> Just they were so allergic to uh, prescribed tasks, mm-hmm. uh, like, like hard to find tasks for skills, and I understand it. It's a very dry, long book filling piece of of rules <laughs> um, that you have to look up every single time because remembering it is not happening. Um, so it it makes the game feel much more difficult to run. I understand all the reasons not to do it, but it's real rough. If uh, the skill is consistently um, a player proposed action that is kind of divorced from situation. It's not like, Hey, we have a challenge to cross. Maybe I'll roll athletics. It's, I'm in a low intensity situation. Can I roll medicine now to help my injured friend? Well, if they're not unconscious, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. Um, and uh, Rich Howard, a good friend of mine, uh, wrote uh, some homebrew rules for, for medicine because he worked as a, a nurse for many years. Um, and, I, I never have enshrined those as official house rules for my campaign, but I sure meant to. Uh, they're, they're very good. Um, they basically take the healer feet and treat its its amount of healing as the baseline on a successful medicine check with proficiency, I think. And then there's an upgraded version you get if you buy the feet. Very, very straightforward stuff. Very useful. Um so then there's also healing surges recognizable to anyone who's played fourth edition or um, 13th age. Um, yeah. But this, this one does integrate with the hit dice mechanic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So you spend a healing surge and you spend hit dice, or you, you're able to spend up to half of your hit dice, which theoretically means you could do it twice in a day. But then, of course, that long rest, if you're using the regular long rest rules, you will not get them all back. You only get half back. So then the next day you could only healing surge once, right? Uh, and so until until the time comes when you stop healing surging, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can then save up your, your hit dice again. But on the other hand, if you're really using hit dice as an expendable resource, then that's okay. I mean, there's a, a dwarf racial feat in Xanathar's that so surpasses this that, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but of course, I mean... Yeah, so we don't have access to that at the time we're reading. Right, so, just yeah. who knew dwarves had, right. like, regen, I guess? It's regen. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's a yeah. strange set of choices. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, so let's hey, move on from They're, they're yeah. the best they are at what they do. I'm uh, sure. Thank you, Wolverine. Very good. <laughs> do all your dwarves go around saying snicked bub? All right, fine. I had that coming. I had that coming. Uh, they, they drag an aberrant mind sorcerer around with them through the, you know, <laughs> the, the the black and white hinterlands of, uh, you know, nowhere um, American West. Sure. <laughs> um, so also slow natural healing. Um, th- this, along with the rest variants, are things that I considered using for some kinds of campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um I- I actually have some experience, but I'd have to go into the rest variants, so I didn't want to skip ahead. But. Oh, for sure. Well, tell your story, man. So, um, for my Streets of Avalon game, I was trying to do the the gritty urban fantasy thing. So, we did slow natural healing, and we did the long rest, where it was the uh, you know eight hours for a short rest and one week for a uh, long rest. And it it does not play as nicely with how 5e wants to do things as it seems when they just kind of offhand mention it in here Mm -hmm. and what i ended up um, basically what it is is it seems like it works much better when you can definitively tell the players nothing will happen during this week when you're resting up because if you make anything feel immediate they feel like they're being forced into action but they're also risking themselves in a situation where they will not be able to heal up. And I know this is talking about how, well, it makes people think about whether they're going to get into a fight or not, but it's sometimes it's not really a thought. And it's that feeling that, okay, we're outside of our place where we can rest safely. We're in danger no matter what. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually have experience with the rest variants as well. And amazingly it's as a player. (laughs) <laughs> because I was a player in a game, uh, Tyranny of Dragon games, actually, where um, the DM decided that during the journey part of it, you know, there's this, there's a part of the module where you're with this caravan and you journey for like 40 days or something. Mm-hmm. During the journey part, we're going to use the gritty realism rest rules, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and the problem that we had with it was just exactly what Jared is describing in that now everything we come in contact with feels like it could be in this particular instance, because of the way that the module is structured, we had to stay with the caravan. Mm-hmm. So if we stay with the caravan, we have to face those 
challenges that are there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have no choice. So the 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 choice of expending certain resources or not was almost removed from us and it was basically a game of attrition at this point. Mm-hmm. And what are and a question of what are we going to meet when we actually don't have any resources left. Yeah. And then that was when the decision point of what do we actually do, you know, that is you know, a much more meaningful choice it felt like because, well, we have to run because we're going to die, but that means we're leaving these caravans. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it it wasn't, um, I mean, the DM didn't, I mean, it turned out fine. Right. Uh, And, but the, but the point here that I'm trying to make is because of the way that the, uh, because the way that the, that the game was structured at that time, that part of tyranny, we literally, like didn't have very many choices. And I think that if you're using these rest rules, you need to make sure that there's the, the choice. Cause as, as Jared said, right. Sometimes it's not a, a choice whether you face that creature. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, the thing that did work later in that same campaign, cause we kind of readjusted because the pacing just didn't feel right where it was either me trying to reassure them that, you know, yeah, you can go, cross the street to visit the alchemist and nobody will jump. You trust me, you know, that sort of thing, which takes a lot of the, you know, the tension out of the moment. But what did work later on in the campaign was switching to just doing the slow, natural healing. So like you don't, uh, you don't get all your hit points back. You just get hit dice. And that worked a lot better than altering the rest timing. Yeah. So, so what I want to say is, Sammy, next time you find yourself on a journey like that, just don't stop believing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I won't. Oh. You're you're in a trial by fire. I, is what I'm saying. You know, I we almost went our separate ways, but you know, it was. It was fine. <laughs> oh my goodness! Prima sucks. We're good. Move on. <laughs> yeah, it's time to escape. <laughs> All right, so so firearms. Uh, my campaign uses firearms. It uses these rules for firearms, um, and also you know rules for a shotgun. Um, how about y'all? Um, when I had when I was running my uh, multiple Midgard campaigns, the pist- pistols, muskets, that was all available. Nice. Uh, so technically speaking in my D and D brief game, I had firearms and gunpowder, uh, and there was in the player packet that they received, there was an alternate gunfighter class that they could have chosen. None of them chose it, but because we had, uh, gunpowder, we could have blasting cannons. And so some Mm -hmm. of the ships Mm -hmm. had cannons, uh, but we actually never used it that much because uh, they were afraid of it and <laughs> tried to sell the, the black powder as soon as they could um, and then got into all kinds of trouble and hijinks and then it, <laughs> then they forgot about it. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not generally a fan of, uh, of firearms in my in my fantasy, but, you know, I don't have anything against it. I just don't tend to put it in my in my games. I, I actively decided to run a like high swashbuckling game, um, sort of 1600, 1700s for, for firearms level. And so I'm, I'm really pretty happy with the flintlock rules in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, no burst fire. 
not none of that kind of yeah uh, much higher grade uh, firearms. Yeah, and what what I notice in here that is not true of other editions, and I know uh, I know Dan Dillon has gone off on this, I believe, on uh, Twitter before, is there is not the the five percent chance that a gun will blow your face off if you shoot it. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, we definitely had some of our Caesar uh, Vadari like uh, most vocal users really want misfire rules and <laughs> tell you what i was listening to uh critical critical campaign one at the same time uh-huh i cannot understand that desire no <laughs> i cannot understand it no uh, it, and the thing is sometimes it, it comes from people well i want it to be more realistic you know what five percent of the time that people fired these firearms historically they did not blow their face off i can actually pretty much say that <laughs> <laughs> in, in a line of 20 uh, uh, musketeers <laughs> one of them keels over sure why not oh. um, um, yeah I, so here's what I I'm, I'm, I'm sort of popping to the alien technology but it's all in sure. the same sort of futuristic yeah, yeah. tables and everything um, I don't know if you remember the, the rules for ammunition in the seventh uh, edition Gamma World game, the, the, the D&D 4E version of Gamma World. <laughs> I never actually read them. Okay, so <laughs> it's, it's really super simple, right? So if you oh. have a, a, a weapon that shoots, not a, like a bow and arrow because you can have arrows, but like a weapon that actually shoots like an energy rifle or a, a gun of some sort, you can shoot it once per encounter. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. If you shoot it a second time, it, the, it'll be fine, but uh, you run out of ammunition or you, you have the chance of running out of ammunition. So you have to make a roll, right? Which is great because then you don't have to track something. It's a very simple rule. It applies to all guns overall and, and all that sort of stuff. And the other thing about weapons in that Gamma World edition is they were very simple. They, they fit into like, you know, two categories, light and heavy. Right. And mm -hmm. if it was a light weapon, it had certain characteristics. If it was a heavy weapon, it had certain characteristics. And then it could either be something that shoots so you can reload or not. And, and that sort of thing. It was very, very simple. And it would fit on the same one page thing. And I wish they had provided a little bit of variability like that for some of these like futuristic weapons. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, the reason I reminded this is because you're talking about shooting your face off with a musket, right? Like, <laughs> but it's the same thing with a laser pistol, right? If you're, if you're in, you know, you know, you're in the barrier peaks, right. And you're on a spaceship, but you're from an actual fantasy Greyhawk. You don't really know what that laser gun is. You, you yourself might understand as a player, but your PC doesn't. And so, you know, it should be mysterious about it. So you don't know when it's going to run out of ammunition or energy or whatever. And like, I wish they, put another couple of paragraphs of that in here to provide some of that flavor because right now this, this section to me honestly feels very flavorless. Like oh. it, it assumes a lot about what you think about using firearms or, or alien technology in your game, but it doesn't actually provide you with any of that inspiration to make it really cool. I think that the, the laser guns need to be labeled with colors and and so if you're if you as infrared citizen get your hands on a, an orange pistol, just hope you have some more clones ready, guys. I didn't say you were in Barrier Peaks paranoia. I, I just figured they would shoot different color lasers based on your alignment. 
There you oh, go. That's pretty that's, good. That's, that's good. Uh, like is it. it is it blue for the Joes and red for the Cobras? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um, actually, the interesting thing is, um, I did uh, I reviewed the Goodman Games Five uh, E conversion for Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is in the Five E conversion, they have this chart instead of the instead of the the Gygaxian flowchart. <laughs> oh really yeah that's i mean that's a bummer the gygaxian flowchart is still in the reprint section right sure but this is the default for the uh for the 5e conversion which yeah. kind of surprised me um but you know what i i have mixed feelings on the barrier peaks uh gygaxian flowchart anyway though because there are technological items and expedition to the barrier peaks that are intentionally made to look in a way that no alien species would design them so that something is pointing at your face. So you can accidentally shoot yourself in the face. Sure. But that's, <laughs> but that's that you are absolutely correct. However, that is a specifically Gygaxian. Yes. Right. Like that's, that is appreciated for its Gygaxian-ness. Right? Oh, this thing looks um, like a site. No, that's yeah. actually where the yeah, laser yeah. comes right. out. Right. You yes. just blew your eye out. <laughs> You'll shoot your eye out. Yeah, when the DM asks you, do you press this button? <laughs> if you say yes, then, you know, um, there's problems. <laughs> Does the gun say at me on the side is what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> it says math emergency. Oh. <laughs> This side towards NPC. Do not eat. <laughs> uh, so, so next up, after all of these, including the frag grenades and the smoke grenades, which are a good time. Um, if you can't have a good time with a frag grenade, then that's that is too close of air support. Um, so we have plot points, and this, hmm, I don't know. I don't think option three should be called plot points. No, that's weird. <laughs> Option three should be a different style of campaign. It should be back in one of the other chapters. Yeah. It's an aggressively GM full campaign. Well, I mean, it's just, it's alternating DMs, right? And But but with a particular other mechanic. But you can put that in a, a you know, in a different section. In a, alternating GMs mid-session is not the normal mode no, for that, anyone's alternating GMs. That section made me tired reading it. Yeah, yeah. But, it's, but still, I mean, to put it in this section, then give it its own heading. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Random, odd, stupid thing we put in here, <laughs> it gets its own heading. Right? I mean, uh, they even named it The Gods Must Be Crazy. Well, you know, Sam, if, you, uh, if you're having some... some word count problems this is a good way to get to get some just filler material material in your word count yeah, yeah. you know we, we all know there's nothing else they could have put in this book <laughs> not, not a thing <laughs> nope it's completely perfect up until this page right here Mercy. well okay so the interesting thing is this is another thing that feels like someone saw this in a more narrative game yep. and this is thrown in here and actually mm-hmm. i don't think number one is that bad but i don't like how it's phrased Mm-hmm. because if it were to say I mean, something like I have seen a lot of more story-based games say, whereas you can introduce something as long as it doesn't contradict what has already been established. I like right. it a lot better. I mean, this is um, absolutely just uh, destiny points from Song of the West and Fire Roleplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, considering the 
like very chummy terms that Rob Schwab still is on with all this design team. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, some like that coming up in conversation is no surprise. Um, he's certainly credited as a designer. Let's put it that way. <laughs> very chummy. <laughs> credited as a designer. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I could say the same thing about uh, the second option, right? About, about it. You know, you can say whatever you want as long as it doesn't, uh, however Jared said it, it, it doesn't uh, actually, you know, uh, oppose anything that's already been established. Right? Yeah. yeah. And as long as it doesn't like, you know, the example they give even um, so, so this option says when a player spends a plot point, the player to his or her right must add a complication to the scene. For example, if the player who spins the plot point decides that the character has found a secret door, the player to the right might state that opening the door triggers a magical trap that teleports the party to another part of the dungeon. Well, what if that player decided, oh, opening that door triggers a dimension door, now we're back at the beginning of the dungeon, or only teleports the player that opened the door? Yeah. Now you've split the party, like... I could see where that could be real fun for a certain group. Right. But you have to have some more guidelines about what kinds of things you can designate in a scene and, as and a complication. I do, and I do think as much as there's a lot of talk about, you know, decentralizing games and not necessarily giving all the power to the GM, the GM does kind of have to make sure everything plays nicely together. And that responsibility does not traditionally fall on players in D&D. So therefore, you may not have players that are thinking about the full ramifications of something that they're introducing. So with all of that said, I think even having some language where the GM can, you know, yes and or no but something Mm -hmm. that is introduced there would be kind of important. Like somebody that says, oh, there's a secret door and inside there's a ton of magic items. The GM could then say, well, there is a secret door there but it's actually just got a handful of healing potions in it. Right. So right. This would still be useful, just, you know, this and they, just this, a different mode of players understanding about author stance in play. Right. Then like the rest of the book is written, assuming. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and even just a couple of sentences that say, you know, feel free to negotiate with the, the player who's designating this complication to make sure that it's appropriate for the game Mm -hmm. and make sure that when you introduce this idea to the players, that they all understand that because I could totally see this working for a certain group of people. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. It just needs more guidance. It's a very short little, yeah, you know, it's a very broad um, way of introducing some more narrative rules that does not get the kind of background support it needs to really talk about it. Yep. Yep. All right, so next up we have combat options. Uh, initiative variants are just a thing that happens in the Twitter discourse uh-huh. every six All months to a year. Like, <laughs> that I, long? I, I guess it's September. I guess we're doing initiative. <laughs> um, and, like, you, you know, in before the thread gets locked, uh, Shadow the Demon Lord. Um, yeah but like i've done my own initiative variants and i will say that i think 5e system is a good least worst uh option that they did hang all the rest of the game's timing on so you're pretty stuck with it 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 is hard to 
you know, like, for example, if you're going to, you know, a nomination style initiative, there's a lot of shenanigans you can play with timing of spells when people are handing off to other people, which may not even be the big problem. The problem may be the time of people slowing down the table, trying to figure out the optimal order in which to have people go. Yeah, that level of needing to pay attention to what other people are going to want to do they haven't told you yet is stressful. Yeah. As a player, I would well, not love it. Yeah. It, like it's it's one thing in Sentinels mm. where the the span of things people can do stays fairly Yeah, you have four actions. <laughs> in D&D, get out of here. Yeah. Right. So, you just said what I was going to say because what I was going to say is I specifically use side initiative in castles and crusades and on top of that castles and crusades you roll initiative every round so there's a whole different dynamic with how you determine who's going first and the way that game works though it's it's just what it's just how i do it and I keep it going very quickly. But part of that, the reason that can occur is that honestly, the players, the PCs don't have as many choices and they don't have, you know, big, huge five page PC sheets to try to figure out what they're going to do in their next action. So it doesn't stall or slow down the game, but I could totally see in my fifth edition game, slowing things down. Um, it, It does make me wish for, something kind of 5e adjacent that has a randomized initiative that flows more like the board game Aeon's End, because I love Aeon's End, (laughs) where the only seriously randomized thing in the game is the the order of actions. Mm -hmm. And the the whole game flows from that. And so the, the boss there does things that will go off in like two more boss actions. Mm hmm. And so paying attention to, you know, what's the soonest that could happen? How soon do we need to solve this problem becomes a driving force in play. Um, It it can't work in 5e as written. Yeah. But it could be a really fascinating game or just like additional way to write boss powers and Sentinels of the Multiverse. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, there's definitely I, some of that in the the environmental threats. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that I mean th- those are things that I really like, but I like them because the other mechanics, like you said, there there's not as much hanging on the structure of initiative to where you can play with that. Who's going to go next? Are we going to you know save yeah. these people before we engage the villain? Are we going to potentially risk the villain escaping? that works a lot better in a structure like Sentinels than in D and D. Yep. And I'll, I'll point out again that you have the issue of VTTs, right? Like changing sure. up how you do initiative is really not as easy as it might seem in roll 20. Now, if you're good with programming those macros and running all that great, but if you're not, it's not really something that becomes an option. Well, oh. like side initiative would be trivial in roll 20. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's fewer entries on the same initiative table. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Well, sure, but I, I'm talking. To, oh, sorry, I had skipped ahead to like speed factors. Oh. There's no way to do speed factor. Yeah. Get out of here. No, <laughs> uh, I actually I actually actively hate speed factor. Yeah, it's uh, because declaring what you do uh, that far ahead of you doing it so that you know when to act is a great way to get pickled into my action is no longer valid. 
Well, that's well, the other thing, though. It doesn't say that you can't take a different action, but that is the implication with that type of thing from it from earlier versions of D. Like, if you can't validly do what you were going to do, you don't do it. And how does well, that work with this? Well, so so at the very end, turns on its turn, a creature moves as normal, but must take the action it selected or take no action at all. Okay. I missed that. Yeah. Here's my least favorite part of this is actually nothing to do with what we're even talking about. It says, after deciding on an action, everyone rolls initiative and applies modifiers, keeping the result secret. Why? Uh, yeah. Why are you keeping it secret? <laughs> what a you pain. don't need to. Then everyone rolls a secret multiplier that they will then apply. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, so they made it super duper complicated. I thought, oh, cool, they're going to do something really simple. No, no. Then they turned (laughs) it into, like, let's make this really feel complex, because they think speed factors is supposed to feel complex. But what's, uh, the important thing here, Sam, is they filled up their, you know, necessary word count in this (laughs) chapter. I'm trolling them on that old night. I didn't realize that they had so much ample space over there. Clearly. I mean, Lord knows they had to have those honor and sanity rules that uh, someone uses. uh So I will uh, will say that I don't mind declaring actions, right? Sure. I understand that you are from games where that's a thing. (laughs) Right. I I actively hate that. Right. And so, and that's fine. I totally get that. And, and, but I'm just saying like, so, so, it's okay for this variant to be in here. I just yeah. don't like the way they implemented it. There are certain sure. things about it that I feel like they could have done a better job for 5e because so much of the rest of what they've presented is eloquent and it's kind of sucky that this is not. But you know, what was interesting is even by the time Marvel superheroes came around, when you declared your action, if you had to change what you were doing, you could take a different action. You were just a, a negative three column shift. So they weren't telling you you couldn't do something. It was just you're going to be right. awkward readjusting what you're planning. Right. Well, like in Castles and Crusades, I'm going to harp on it all the time because I run it weekly. But <laughs> so in Castles and Crusades, it's very much like first edition. OK, but the thing uh, is that you only have to declare there's only three actions that you could take in combat that you would have to declare before you roll initiative. Okay, everything else you can declare when it's your turn, but there's three actions that you have to declare first. And the reason for that is because it changes your AC. And what they don't want people to do is say, oh, I'm going to take this action, which would reduce your AC because you're, you're making some weird movement or something, mm-hmm. and then decide, oh, wait, I don't want to do that because it turns out the monster is one initiative, right? They don't want you to do that. That's the only reason they make you declare. So, you know, there's different ways to look at how these things work together and make them, as I said, more eloquent, and they just didn't happen to do it here. I, I will say one thing about the initiative score thing. I have not done that where everyone does it, but I have done that where I just write down the monster's initiative score and then have the PCs roll. Yeah. Yep. I, I do actually like that one. That uh, that one does get a pass from me. Um, I mean, just so we've all said it, the ultimate problem with initiative rules as they exist is the assassin subclass. <laughs> like, yeah it, it's it's the really serious like um dead on arrival problem with initiative rules as they exist um anyway my problem with the initiative score honestly is that it's like they're making yet another attribute 
Like, how uh, many yeah. variants are we going to have where they add an attribute to our list? Yeah. yeah, no, that's super fair. But I don't mind it for monsters, you know, because no, if I am the GM and I am like, as is often pointed out, you know, I'm juggling however many things. Writing down a 15 instead of rolling a D20 sure. plus five oh, yeah. saves me a few seconds on each one of those monsters. Yeah, you know? totally. Yep. I, I'm uh, not even opposed to, to actually, I mean, I'm making fun of the attribute thing, but I'm not opposed. I think if this was laid out as here's how we're doing initiative f- from before, you know, in session zero or before they mm-hmm. make their characters so that they know, so that they know if they pick something, you can adjudicate how whatever that ability is that they picked that affects initiative. There aren't very many. Um, that you know or when they're thinking about their deck score they know they're always going to go second in combat right mm-hmm. when it, you know what i mean so that's that that has value i think and that could do something to really speed up the game if you always knew well i always know that the wizard goes after the fighter right right and and because i didn't want the players to always go in the same order uh, i did write a variant that uh, passed the first player button Oh, nice. Um, That's cool. Very, very much like um, passing the the uh, dealer position in poker. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Um, and then they stay. So they stay in. The still, they still stay in deck's order, but the per- first person changes. Uh, no. So uh, you're just passing the button around the table, and then uh, play they, flows to the left. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, so they stay in the same order. It's just the person who starts. Right. That's different. Yeah. No, yeah. that's good. That's that's awesome. I like that. Would, see, that could take the place of the speed factor. Like it, it is literally a just a, a like the, the whole goal was, you know, every once in a while the assassins feature definitely works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't want to harp on that, but no. um, <laughs> honestly, though, I want some other. Well, I, I like the phantom. If I were playing an assassin type, I would play a phantom now anyway. But oh, know. for sure. Oh, it's so classy. <laughs> It's so classy. And yeah. like it's very much more the like death aligned rogue or sort of angel of death mm-hmm. that a lot of people who play assassins, hi Liam or Brian, I hope you listen to our show, um, <laughs> really want to play. Yeah. Right? Um like yeah, very, very classy there. So next up is action options and um these are gonna be a very mixed bag to me. Mm-hmm. Um so climb up on a bigger creature. I'm a fan, just big old fan. It's I've used it. <laughs> it it's it's good visuals. Um, I've never seen anyone fight a dragon and not at least think, man. I bet the middle of its back would be a really cool place to fight this thing from. Uh, if assuming they use weapons. Spoilers. Yeah. I actually have that happened to me two sessions ago in Rhyme of the yeah, Frostmaiden. Like they jumped onto the mm-hmm. freaking dragon. They're fighting our Viatoris. Please tell me. No, it was uh, the short. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Dragon, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, fine. It's a robot dragon. <laughs> but here, here's my problem with this little section about climbing onto a bigger creature. That is totally awesome, and it should be somewhere else in this book. Not. Oh, right it, it absolutely just needs to be treated as an official rule. That, yeah. that doesn't yeah. even feel optional. That's just like, this is going to come up sometime, guys. Yeah, yeah. It, either, it either needs to go in Chapter 8 or in the Environment Chapter or in the NPC. I don't, I don't know where it needs to go, but it needs to go somewhere else but here. Um, so so next up is Disarm. Um, I feel super weird about this just because the the level of problem that you have if you're successfully disarmed is extreme. Yeah, both both for PCs and NPCs, 
And so I kind of want that to have some further question of, you know, can the, the disarming person or one of their allies pick up the weapon or not? Nah? Yeah. I, I, from a narrative standpoint, if you look at stories where someone gets disarmed, it is usually when there is a disparity between the uh, skill of the people or the other person can recover it right away. And it's just kind of a, you know, you know, you, you were, you know, Wesley gets to do the, uh, the, the triple, the triple flip to go recover the, the sword because it's sure. more of a flourish than it is a, an actual hindrance. Right. Uh, but you know, uh, no one disarms like Obi-Wan disarms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, it also gives me like third edition flashbacks, but not in a good way. Yeah. I feel that. Well, it, and a part of it is just that it is just a use an object action to pick up the weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a part of your action economy that you actually don't remember you have. <laughs> and that's, yeah, don't love it. Well, I really want to like this cause it's so swashbucklery, but yeah, I don't, I mean, so my issue is it feels like a called shot. Uh huh. Yep but it's not treated like a called shot. Well, I mean, insofar as there's a called shot in, in the whole game, but right. Yes. But, but, but yeah, you're not taking any kind of penalty or anything to do it. Yeah. You're just doing you're not, it. You're not unless the, uh, unless the creature is using a two handed weapon, in which case then you have disadvantage. Okay. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know. It feels weak. I, I feel like they wanted it to be very simple so that if someone wanted to use sure. it, it's very easy to implement. But to me, then it has no bite, right? Like uh, they, they literally just drop the item at their feet so they can just bend right. down and pick it up. Like, well, or you can bend down and pick it up on your action as the, as the disarming character. Right. Because right. it's just to use an object action guys. Right. Right, right. No, I, I know, but I'm just mm. saying, like, so, and yeah. none of that's spelled out, though. Well, right? it, it isn't spelled out here. It is spelled out in the combat section of the player's handbook. Yeah. yeah. But point me to that, right? But with it being optional, it's not tied to any of those combat things. It's here in this chapter, mm. isolated from all of those things, because it's just here as an optional thing. I, I mean, I agree. Um, so next up is Mark. I loved Marks so much in fourth edition, and this doesn't deliver what I no. like about them. It, the, the problem is if there was something anywhere that reacted to whether something was marked, this would be yes. worthwhile. Yes. But this is it. As a, as a scripting hook, Mark is valuable. In and of itself, it's not really it's fine, but not super interesting. Mm-hmm. But man as the whole like dynamic of your opportunity attacks and extra punishment and such. Oh, it's so cool. Mm-hmm. And, and man, it made playing a dragonborn fighter, just the tits. It was so good. <laughs> Interestingly though, this actually kind of breaks their advice at the beginning of the chapter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The opportunity attack doesn't expend the attacker's reaction. There you go. I just, I wish Mark did something different if it's going to be a separate thing yeah all right so overrun 
Um, I'm I'm fine with it. <laughs> that's fine. You def- this is again on the. You definitely need rules for this. This is going to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's like, uh, yeah, a writer is going to try to thunder past someone and ride over them, mm-hmm. or you're going to fight a mumikel. It happens. We all <laughs> uh, we're all writers over here sometime in our lives. <laughs> so what I want to know is why isn't this this little set of rules? In chapter eight, with the other combat, man, it should be in the player's handbook. Yeah, it this is the player facing option. Well, There's sure, no reason for this to be optional. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I, that particular one. But I'm saying this whole like section. Well, because Mark needs right? to be optional. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but you could you could put that in chapter eight as optional combat. You totally could. You totally could. Right. Yeah. Especially for the the amount of space they actually spent explaining all these things. Yep. Right. Um, uh, like. Overrun's fine. Shove aside is kind of shove aside is almost amusing to me because this seems like the type of thing where someone would say, "Hey, can I shove them sideways instead of back?" Sure. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Exactly. Like, it really yeah. just th- this reads to me like, you know what? Um, we already finished writing the player's handbook, and we thought about this one other thing that you might want to do. <laughs> yeah, we should include that. That's fine. Um. And like I loved uh, forced movement in fourth edition, mm. so I'm down. <laughs> it's great. Um, Unfortunately, though, this isn't as rich as all that, so it well, doesn't no, really it's, slot it's in not. as well as that would. But yeah, but it is a, a universally available option, so it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, sure. It, yeah. It's no um, uh, what repelling blast, but it's not nothing. <laughs> um, and tumble. Um, I don't love this. I don't either. Because disengage is good enough. Yeah. Um, this is another one that gives me like three, five flashbacks where it's like, yeah, you know, I want this edition to feel different and I don't need this. Yeah. Well, here's my issue with it. It says you can do it as an action or a bonus action. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's weird. It's, Who's going to get it as a bonus action? Are you going to allow everybody to choose that as a bonus action if right. they are granted it, a bonus action? It definitely takes some of the excellence out of cunning action. Yeah, mm-hmm. for absolutely. For sure it does. Stomps right all over it. So this one doesn't have a place to me. Yeah. Um, all of these um, action options are, other than the climb on the ta- top of a bigger creature, are very um, mediocre to me. Like, they're fine. You know, whatever. I, I don't use them. And what's interesting to me is like a lot of times when I'm using an optional rule, I will write that in campaign standards and say I'm using this. But honestly, for the ones that I would use with climbing onto a bigger creature or over overrun or shove, I'm not even going to put that in a document because that's right. going to be a yeah. player is going to say, hey, can I climb up on that thing? And I'm going to say, yeah, this is how I'll go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like uh, I would, I've always wanted like slightly more robust stunting. Mm hmm. And this is that sort of like, I would love to see um, Mark get the chop and a tumble, get the chop. And like, if you want a tumble action, then just make it do something that isn't the same as disengage. Yeah. And not don't throw the, I, I missed the bonus action in there too. And that's even weirder. Yeah. Um, so anyway, hitting cover, um, you always going to be a hostage situation. 
It's always going to come up. Um, the, or, or there'll be some other reason that you don't want to shoot the cover, but I don't know. I guess they strapped priceless artwork to themselves as a shield. I, I don't know what the <laughs> use case is there, but that's fine. But but what if you, you know that your party member would be okay with you shooting them through the shoulder to hit the person? <laughs> So then that's rad, and I'm fine with, yeah, yeah, uh, you'll take full damage, I'll take half damage. Are we good? We're good. This, this to me, puts a mechanical thing I have to think about on top of something I just would have narrated, mm-hmm. you know? That's super like, I, I, don't, I don't need it. Uh, right, and, and I'm a bit sympathetic, at least, to, hey, hey, Sam, you've been DMing for like a minute or two now. Um, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and <laughs> this book is also for people who haven't been, but at the same time, attaching any rules to it and not sort of, you know, what narrative it feels right, um, it is okay. But there are going to be those high stakes hostage situations where it super matters. Mm-hmm. Sure, but then they they could add a sentence at the end of this that says, you know, this this might not matter at all. Yeah. So, or or only use this if it really matters. Otherwise, just narrate whether it hits it or not. Whatever is a a, a nice flourish to the to the color of the situation. There you go. Yep. Right. Feel um, free to do that. Feel free to narrate things just because they sound good. Right. And of course, this is also a mess because sharpshooter feet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, cleaving through creatures is one hell of a callback. Yeah. You know, the- welcome to original. Uh, <laughs> oh, all right. Not even extra crispy D and D, but but straight up original. Just if it if it's weak enough, you keep on chopping. You would like to ruin the day of an entire village of kobolds, <laughs> right? From but, one but attack. only if you're <laughs> but but only if you're uh, of hero level, Jared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because that's what heroes do. They ruin the day of a couple village kobolds. <laughs> and here's where I really want them to intersect this optional rule with, if we go back to uh, chapter eight, where it talks about mobs, mm-hmm. right? Or, or, or give me something about some other options like minions. Don't just give me one option. For sure. Right. Like I feel like they, they could have you know, done a little bit more with this to make it really pop. It's fine. It's fine. It really is. But mm-hmm. no, that's why I say most of these things feel mediocre to me. Hey, raise your hand. If you've written uh, an excessively long Twitter thread about cool mechanics from fourth edition that could have been written to fifth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it me. <laughs> like I'm, I'm feeling what you're saying though. Like <laughs> minions would have been nice. Um, we've been touching on bloodied every now and again throughout this yeah. whole series. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, since it got mentioned in here, I do still tell people when something is bloodied so that sure. they mm-hmm. get the yeah. idea that, you yeah. know, yeah, it's starting to feel it. Yeah. And you know where that is? Chapter eight. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> where God intended. Right. <laughs> so next up is injuries. Um, I am not in love with this table. No, I really want something that operates more like exhaustion. Yes, uh, without being exhaustion itself, because Jesus, one hundred percent agree. But um, I don't, I don't love this table. I do know people who um, uh, 
when a, when the a PC gets hit with a critical hit at the end of that combat, they are exhausted. Or if they get sorry, if they get uh, exhausted, reduced it's to zero. If they get reduced Whoa. to zero hit points and they get brought back up during that combat, they have exhaustion. Yeah, like that's not that's not sort of out of bounds to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I would do it on a crit. I think I would do it. Maybe I would consider it on zero hit points. Right. Well, doing it on a crit makes really strange things happen for like uh, fighting a large number of weenies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But because like I have a hundred hit points. Yeah. I'm going to take 30 damage from all those dudes with arrows, but is, is a lingering injury really the style here? Well, see, that's, that's when that, that village of kobolds, the next village over gets back at you for wiping out their friends. (laughs) No joke. (laughs) Yeah. They just taking eyes over there. (laughs) Well, and the other thing that bothers me about this thing is, Let's say you you roll for uh, a cantrip to hit someone and you give them a festering wound with like, a you know, a blast of fire like it's. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, sure. Yeah. Hey, you know, it would definitely make things better if there were separate critical hit tables for every kind of. I was uh, I was going to ask you Brandis. against all different uh, <laughs> monster body types. That would super help. Yes. So, um. That's in the second edition uh, combat, combat tactics book, yep. yeah, <laughs> that Brandis and I talked about, not last Christmas, uh-huh. but the Christmas before. But we, we had a lo- lengthy uh, commentary about those tables because some of the things that were on there were just so like grotesque. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but here, here's the thing, though. They thought they were written Chartmaster. I don't know why. Yeah, so, so the thing is, like, like, the, like this is for PCs. Mm-hmm. And and so, you're not going to create a, a lingering uh, injury on on an enemy, right? Well, it, unless the enemy gets away and the DM thinks it's cool, yeah. But right, you don't need right. rules for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. Sometimes right, exactly. you want to play Shadow of Mordor. Right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and the way that they and the way they recognize that villain is the limp, right? <laughs> so like I, yes and, every and campaign that, needs the limper from the black company i agree with that <laughs> but i'm just saying like like that's the way to narrate that you don't necessarily have to roll on a table so i don't know I, I mean it's okay i understand some tables like this sort of gritty stuff it's fine the other problem with this is this is very much like a lot of more granular issues that aren't core to the game system which is this is a thing and it's very important and it causes you this disadvantage until this magic is used and then it's no longer a thing. Yep. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, yeah. W- yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I'm all up going forward into my next hard no section. Uh, massive damage. <laughs> no, you just imagine my voice is a foghorn saying no. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, okay. Here's one massive problem with this massive damage. Mm. And that is, what the hell are you going to do to people that are low level with this? <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. Don't like it. Oh, I, I did want to say one more thing about the lasting injuries, though. I actually like the thing that's buried in the last paragraph, which is that instead of this, you could have someone write a flaw. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's totally. I totally like that much good. better. <laughs> yep. That's like robust use of flaws 
is one of the like totally forgotten pieces of actually good tech. Mm-hmm. As soon as we fix inspiration. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so on this massive damage table, when you look at the six to seven, right, the system shock roll, mm-hmm. the creature can't take reactions and has disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks until the end of its next turn. That's temporary. Okay. But sure. when you're talking about a first or second level PC, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that could also be deadly. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So if that's the way you roll, great. But recognize that. And the problem is that it doesn't like it. I mean, I don't know. I guess if you're using an optional rule called massive damage, you probably understand that it's going to be painful for low level characters, but maybe not. I don't know. Look, I'm just going to say action denial is kind of pants. Yeah. 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 And also it's a set DC. And that's another thing that I kind of have an issue with, with this whole thing too. And also it does the thing in some of these, some of these system shock results do the thing it says not to do at the beginning, which is don't change the action economy. Yes. Yep. Well, apparently, you know, it's okay to screw someone out of action. It's just not okay to give them extra. (laughs) Right. Don't add anything. (laughs) So so in all fairness, yes. Like that, that does track. This actually leads to one of my, what's going to be one of my closing statements about this chapter. So I'm just giving you some foreshadowing here. You're going to come, we're going to come back to the, that sort of idea. So anyway, let's move on. So, so morale, um, <sighs> morale. I, I certainly have an expectation that Sam was, Sam is going to like this in principle um, <laughs> because I, I think you're generally in favor of morale rules as, as a thing, Sam. Yep. Um, and, and my take is that, I feel very comfortable playing playing the characters and coming up with their motivations and level of involvement in Project Mayhem on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they bail when they bail. I am going to say something that I will probably have many, many people disagree with on this. Bring it on. The point at which something makes that decision to run or continue to fight should be it bloodied. And there's so many people that are like, well, when you get down to three hit points, no, three hit points does not mean you're about to die. That's not how hit points work. You don't mm-hmm. know you're about to die. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what, Jared, no one has ever disagreed <laughs> with anything Brandis and I say on here. So congratulations. This is the first time anybody on our show has said anything disagreeable. <laughs> Man, the hate mail on this one's going to be f- sweet. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, like when people talk about, well, you shouldn't have everything fight to the death. Well, if it doesn't know it's about to die, it doesn't know that that sword thrust that goes through its heart is going to be the thing that kills it. That's yeah. not how hit points work. You know, it's not an actual measure of health. Right. Sure. I think that's I think it's a really good point. But but so here's my response to that. That's why there's an actual mechanic for it. But, but also, we don't insist that players act as if they don't know their current hit point total. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. So well, I'm not going to have that argument because I, yeah. But, but what I'm saying is, I, I agree with both of you. I, I agree with Brandis that there are. It's perfectly fine to just say that I can determine when a creature knows it, when it has a, a, a self-preservation instinct, especially if it's an animal or a beast. Right? It's going to have a self-preservation instinct and it's going to flee. 
Okay. And it's perfectly okay for the DM to decide when that is without having a morale system, without having a role, whatever that that's perfectly, that is within the intent of the rules within the, you know, whatever, like that's totally awesome. I love that. And I Mm -hmm. do that in a lot of games I run as well. However, I also like a morale system because some of the creatures like, you know, goblins or kobolds or something, which, you know, might be considered to have slightly above animal intelligence, right? Depending on the setting and all that. Those I want, I might want to randomize when some of them decide, all right, screw it, I'm out of here, right? And so that's why I like a morale system, right? Is that I might want to randomize it. In fact, in my CNC game, I told you I was going to keep coming back to this. Just the other day, I had some bandits uh, on a road attacking the PCs. And it, in, I mean, well, they were trying to get them to give them money, but it ended up in a fight, okay? And ultimately, a couple of them fled. And on my morale role for that, on my personal table for that particular set of enemies, they had the option of fleeing in terror and not getting reinforcements or fleeing and going back to the hideout and getting reinforcements because those are two different runaway kind of responses. And I happened to run that they fled and didn't get reinforcements. And that actually changed the tenor of the entire encounter because they didn't get the reinforcements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I, I do my morale stuff a little bit differently. It's a much more sort of bespoke way that I do it based on the creature type and things like that. Um, but I do feel like there is a niche for it. I feel like it's a nice thing to have in, in the variant rule section. I, I'm totally okay with not having it and with the DM who feels comfortable doing it. And I'm totally okay with having it. I'm not sure I like this implementation. In fact, I'm sure I don't necessarily like <laughs> this implementation. Um, but cause I agree that a- hit points are not just physical, yeah, uh, in- injurious health, right? That's not what hit points are. And, and also I'm not against the idea that, you know, that ogre that may not be reacting because he's only got three hit points doesn't notice that he's the only ogre left fighting and he's outnumbered. And then he might go, you know what? I'll see you guys later. Thanks. This was fun. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> So, I mean, that's not the only thing. Also, I wouldn't expect PCs to ignore their hit points, but they're also the protagonists. And players have an infinite ability to come up with ill-advised actions without you telling them that they have to. (laughs) That is a fair point. Um, Yeah, well, and like this also, like the last paragraph of this, a failed saving throw is knowledge to the adventurer's benefit. For example, an ogre that flees from combat might put the rest of the dungeon on alert run off with treasure that the characters had hoped to plunder. Oh, so we're playing EverQuest. (laughs) Assume I include an appropriate number of four-letter words here. Well, and so so here's the thing. I, if you're going to try to suddenly teach the DM how to make a living environment. Yeah. This is not the place to do it in this one sentence in this paragraph stuck in the morale section on page 273. Accurate. Right? That is 100% accurate. Now, I will say when it comes to something, you know, triggering uh, encounters from other nearby places, that was one of the things that I really like Storm King's Thunder over, say, Princes of the Apocalypse. Because in Prince of the Apocalypse, there were things kind of buried in paragraphs. Oh, something might hear this from this room or whatever, but... In Storm King's Thunder, there was a whole chart showing you that if you caused a ruckus here, these these people will move in from here, and these will move here, and these will move here, and I really appreciated that. 
Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we will be back next time with part two of chapter nine. I'd, I'd hope that our conversation with Enrique was going to be the only time we did this, but who was I kidding? <laughs> I'm shocked that it took until chapter eight for this to happen. So <laughs> I'm shocked there's gambling going in this establishment. <laughs> You're winning, sir. So, Jared, where can people find you on the internet? Well, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> um, so, um, you can find me at Gnome Stew, where I do reviews and a few other articles here and there. You can also find me at whatdoiknowjr.com, which is my personal blog. And if you want to look me up on Twitter, you can find me at uh, whatdoiknowjr, you know, at whatdoiknowjr, you know, the Twitter thing. And Brandis, where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I write for tribality.com. My personal blog is www.brandastoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. And Sam? And I am Sam Dillon, and you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel. And you can also find me on the interwebs at rpgmusings.com. And you can find my products on the DMs Guild. And um, you can find me on the next episode where we cover the second half of Chapter 9. And until then, wear your mask again if you ever took it off. Folks, I don't want to be in pandemic year two electric boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, in that case, the sequel is better than the original, but this is not one of those cases. <laughs> <laughs> this is more like Highlander 2. There should have been only one. <laughs> <laughs>